welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. While many civic leaders are working toward detangling the complex systems that have sustained injustice here on Earth, Dr. Danielle Wood is coming at it from a very different angle. Who would have thought that the advancement of justice and sustainable development on Earth could be informed by space technology? This is the mission of our next guest who's working toward that goal as the director of the Space Enabled Research Group at MIT. Professor Wood is a scholar of societal development with a background that includes satellite design, earth science applications, systems engineering, and technology policy. In her research, Professor Wood applies these skills to design innovative systems that harness space technology to address developmental challenges around the world. Join us in this fascinating conversation where we meet at the intersection of racial equality and space technology. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide and kindly leave a review. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you Dr. Danielle Wood. Danielle Wood, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, Danielle. And uh, the reason why I want to speak with you is because I think your work is remarkable. It seems that a lot of what you try to do is you try to use innovative systems that harness space technology to address development challenges around the world, which I think is incredible and nuanced. And so I'm curious to know, in your own words, how do you describe what you do? I am a professor and I direct a research group at MIT called the Space Enabled Research Group. In this role, I'm also a teacher and a mentor toward many people, young people, people of all ages, actually. In the research team, I focus on a mission in which we seek to advance justice in Earth's complex systems using designs enabled by space. This means that my team is made of people from lots of different backgrounds, including engineering, social science, art, and design. And we are working together to ask first, how can we ensure that everyone around the world has access to technology from space? And second, how can we support sustainability on Earth and actually in space for years to come? Oh, that's fascinating. How did you end up in this line of work? And what is your origin story? How did you find yourself on this path to becoming who you are today and how you got to where you are today? I am really lucky to say that my current job is the result of a long journey in which I had to figure out an answer to a few key questions. First, I'm a Black woman, and I asked myself since I was about 17, why is the world so unfair toward Black women? Why is it so difficult for women who look like me around the world to gain access to education, jobs, career paths, sometimes even basic things like healthcare and safety? Second, I was also inspired and really intrigued by space, by the technology that is part of space activity, but more interestingly by the teams that come together to create space technology and space missions. So I've been asking myself since I was about 17, what activities might I do if I want to contribute to both human activities in space, but also to improving life for people around the world, such as Black women, who often face consistent barriers and challenges? And furthermore, is space actually a tool or part of the overall tools we have to actually make life better for people around the world? When I first started answering this question as an undergrad studying aerospace engineering at MIT, I was assuming that actually it's not relevant to work on space technology as a tool to support 
social justice, or to make people have a better life. But now I can confidently say that space technology is an excellent example of one of the tools that we have brought together as humans to address social justice. And this is partly because space is a global commons where people have to work together across countries and nationalities and languages to do important things. And partly because actually everyone has a right to benefit from space. And so it's a great field to talk about how we all deserve to take advantage of this technology and this tool. Well, I have to say, Daniel, that's a very mature approach to essentially finding your sense of purpose. So would it be better to ask a question to kind of pull back some of these layers and ask what were some early experiences that kind of set you on this path that shed light on the fact that you were really deeply curious about things related to space and the universe? So I should certainly explain that when I asked myself these questions around age 17, I did not have an answer. It's not as though I asked the question and then was immediately able to say, well, I should start a research team at MIT and work on this research. No, it took me many years to sort of wander blindly and ask, you know, what could I do to respond to this sort of instinctual concern? As a child, I had the chance to be aware of space activity, partly because I grew up in Florida, and I also had a family that was privileged to learn a lot about what was happening in our local community. I grew up in Orlando, and it's a location where you can uh, see some of the benefits of our nation's space program. It's close enough to the NASA's Kennedy Space Center that it's possible to see a launch, even just from the average neighborhood in Orlando. Now, I would say that while that was my first exposure to space, that was not the reason that I decided to become a space engineer. Early on as a child, my family would always take a break when we knew there were national launches coming up. We would take a break from class and go outside to watch the launch. Or if we were at home, my parents would be interested in encouraging us to watch it. Nowadays, uh, we still go online and my mom and I will both be watching online if it's an opportunity to see a launch. But I'd say that all of that was just sort of part of the background, meaning I knew that in Florida, there was NASA and people were working and going to space. It didn't mean that I personally thought I'd be part of that community. As a child, I felt quite interested in a variety of things. I enjoyed uh, theater, and I was actually in a very active theater program in high school. I enjoyed all kinds of art and writing. Actually, my favorite class was, was English and literature. But I also thought math was great and science. And to be honest, if you told me as a child that it was really important to pick a field that you have to major in and make that your main activity, this was very difficult for me. I didn't want to choose. I thought it would be great to actually be able to explore a variety of ways of learning. But I also note that as an editorial comment, I think our education system kind of wrongfully discourages students from exploring many ways of thinking. As a student in high school, when I was doing theater, I was almost teased you know, in a friendly way by my friends because I was also in calculus. And there was hardly anyone else who was doing both a lot of art and advanced math. And that is often a divide where we channel students to say, well, are you going to be an art student or a math and science student? Where instead I, I tried to do both and I had friends across these two different communities and uh, sometimes I had to choose to eat lunch with the theater kids or the art kids uh, and, and whether I wanted to hang out with them or, or those who were in my math and science classes. But ultimately, so many people can appreciate both kinds of thinking and there's no reason to artificially uh, sort of force kids to choose one. So I think that's one piece of it is that as a high school student and a middle school student, I was in some ways, quietly pushing against the culture that uh, kind of encourages students to specialize, I think, too early. I think we actually need uh, students in the future to graduate and to uh, have all kinds of skills, a combination of what's often called right brain and left brain thinking. So I tried to cultivate that. And as I went into undergrad, I was studying aerospace engineering at MIT, but I also looked for opportunities to grow in culture. So I studied Spanish as well. 
Oh, that's really curious. So I have to ask, given the nature of the educational system, as children start in school, they have a deep sense of curiosity, and that's a thing that they carry with themselves throughout the world or in their worlds. But as we kind of progress in our educational system, curiosity, slowly but surely, I would argue, kind of diminishes. So how have you been able to maintain and hold that sense of curiosity throughout your professional journey? I do want to give a lot of credit to some amazing teachers, to my parents, and to the friends and colleagues who I think all of us, you know, sought to support each other in keeping a, a sense of curiosity. I had a quite a unique experience as a middle school student in a rather experimental school called the New School, kind of with a reference to some of the other traditions of education that have been tried around the country. It was a school that was built on Howard Gardner's theory of intelligences, uh, the idea of multiple intelligences that we talk about the fact that students can be celebrated for being smart in a variety of ways, not just reading and writing and math, but also their physical environment and their ability to work with their bodies and their understanding of other people's emotions. Uh, there's a variety of these intelligences that Howard Gardner has explained. And so I think being in a school that actually celebrated students of lots of different forms of intelligence and used the arts to encourage all students to look for ways to uh, explore their own style of learning was very motivating for me. I would say that participating in art, in this case, being very active in the theater program in high school, was a huge boon to my learning. Uh, of course, it takes a lot of time to dedicate attention to any activity such as theater or dance or music. And it means that as a student, one is encouraged to focus and try to really build up a skill set. So whether it's learning monologues or understanding some of the techniques in making costumes or stagecraft, all of that can lead to a student really taking the joy of looking deeply at a topic, learning how to execute it, and then sharing that with others. And I think that's one of the, the great opportunities that any student could have, whether it's in theater or robotic competition or debate club or any activity that students do. I'd like to explore the idea of space access with you. And so when I think of space, I always think about the space race during the Cold War where the United States and the Soviet Union were the two countries essentially leading the charge in, ter in terms of space exploration. So I'm curious to know, now that multiple countries have access to space, and as you put it, they have their right to essentially create a space program, not only does it lead to space traffic and this idea of space sustainability, but then what does that lead to also as a matter of competition? Is there, as a result, is there more competition over space, over locations, over information, over access? And how does that play out as it pertains to different governments of countries here on Earth? How does that all kind of, how do you make sense of all that? Overall, I want to highlight that the international space community is one of the best examples we have for international collaboration and for having a role for many countries to play a leadership opportunity. Let me give you some examples. So if you take an economics or international law point of view, there's a few locations where humans operate right now, economically and socially, that we consider commons, meaning areas we have to share. So these include Antarctica. Not everyone thinks about that, but I want to just give a plug to Antarctica. It's an amazing place. And I just want to highlight that it's so wonderful that right now in several countries, for example, operate bases for scientific research in Antarctica, 
and we do it safely and without war. We have not at this time been fighting over Antarctica, partly because there's not a lot of economic resources there compared to the northern Arctic. But Antarctica is this very important commons. It has, of course, it's storing a lot of the ice and water that keeps our sea level at, at bay, ideally, until we melt it off. But Antarctica is a great example of a place where there's a treaty, and the ways that countries interact there is governed by this treaty. In a similar way, the open ocean, so areas that are not controlled by one country's uh, water jurisdiction, are also governed by international treaties. That we figured out some careful plans for what it means for a vehicle to travel through the open ocean. It should have a flag, it should be registered to a country, and it should follow certain protocols. Similarly, if you look at the atmosphere. There's a lot of writing and sort of rules in place that have been developed. And there's an organization called ICAO, and it's a civil aviation organization. And they've developed over many years a very careful set of uh, coordination processes so that in the atmosphere, we can have thousands of planes normally, not as much during COVID, but thousands of planes operating simultaneously uh, and safely taking off and landing at airports. So these are all areas of commons, Antarctica, the open ocean, the atmosphere, and we have an idea already of the role that national countries and states play to regulate these. And then we have international agreements. And of course, there's a nice um, joke people that will make about international law to say, well, it's a form of law, but ultimately our world is organized around countries. So each country has you know, laws and they, they enforce those. If you look at international law, you have to only do things that people agree to do, meaning countries have to come together and say, yes, I agree to abide by this treaty. I'll make it part of my national law. But technically, we can't force other countries to do something they don't want to do unless we actually go to war, which we try to avoid. But there are still powerful treaties. So space is quite similar. That Just like Antarctica, the ocean, and the atmospheric coordination we do for global air travel, space is also governed by about five treaties, and as well as follow-on documents written through a committee in the United Nations. Uh, yeah, I think I understand. That's really interesting. So I have to ask... Given your framing of understanding problems from a big picture perspective, how do you kind of take that approach with the ability of collaboration to dissect and address smaller micro problems or what are perceived to be micro problems from a big picture space perspective, those problems being related to divisiveness and conflict? How do you kind of make sense of all of that? So let me give you three examples of how I think we can learn a lot from space to apply to reducing divisiveness on Earth. Uh, the first is thinking about the Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space, which is hosted in the United Nations, and actually has over 90 countries who are members. And some of them are countries that are very active in space, and some are less active and, and more new to the experience. But they are able to join this committee. And the committee only makes decisions by consensus, meaning they, they don't actually vote. So it's not a majority rule system. They make decisions where every country has said, yes, we're OK with that document. We agree for that to be published in our group. And this team uh, meets several times a year, normally in person, but of course different this year due to COVID. But they normally meet several times a year for the major committee and the subcommittees to talk about legal and scientific issues related to space. And this is the committee that created the major space treaties that we have, which say things like, if my astronaut from my country lands in your country, please don't arrest them, but rescue them and bring them home. And it talks about the fact that we don't want to put major weapons of mass destruction in space. One of the great things we can celebrate about this set of treaties and the global coordination process on space law is that we have avoided major war activities in space. We don't see aggressive activities where countries are actually attacking each other in space. This is a great achievement of actually global coordination. And it's partly because we've had this foundation ever since the first satellites were being launched. The United Nations and several other groups got together right away and said, this is a new era. We need to establish some agreements so that we can all enjoy space together. 
and it's been remarkably successful. So it's at the international scale. Let's come a little more narrow, and we can talk about the International Space Station, which is an organization also organized by a treaty among five parties. You have a set of countries from Europe, the United States, Canada, Japan, and actually Russia. And people may not realize that, but the U.S. and Russia work very closely in space, and we've been doing so for decades, and we do so even when things aren't going well in other parts of the U.S.-Russia relationship. So right after the Soviet Union fell, the U.S. was very interested in collaborating with the space community and the scientific community uh, within the former Soviet Union, partly to say we can work together in peace and not have you know, ongoing buildup of aggression and concern about weapons. So we've had amazing collaboration. And of course, the U.S. has just celebrated the fact that we've launched American astronauts from the Kennedy Space Center recently with a company, SpaceX being the builder. But during the period between uh, the last launch of the space shuttle around 2011 and more recently our launch from SpaceX just this year, we were collaborating closely and we still will because many people from all over the world have traveled to the space station with Russia. And it's a very useful and helpful collaboration. So I think what's so great is to watch how people from many nationalities do operate and live closely together on the space station. It's one of the best examples of people doing their best to work together, you know, regardless of national identity, even though they're all serving their own country. They're there with their flags, they represent their country, but they're also a crew that must work together to survive. Another example is looking at all the ways that we do science in space. So NASA, for example, both sends humans to explore space, but NASA and also other space agencies around the world from Europe and Japan and India and parts of South America and other regions, they also send satellites to understand our planet and to study the distant universe, uh, further galaxies and black holes. Often we put telescopes on satellites to study either other planets or distant locations in the universe. And these missions are always collaborative. They always bring together multiple scientists from different countries because we actually need the smartest people in every field to work together. In honor of this sense of collaboration in space and to talk about the importance of climate change, my team did a project during the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. So I hope you know where you were when it came time to celebrate in July 2019 to remember the 50th anniversary of Apollo. My team was actually in New York at the Intrepid Museum of Sea, Air, and Space. We were so thankful to be invited there, and we did an art display that was a reflection on Earthrise. Earthrise is a picture that was taken in 1968 by one of the Apollo astronauts who was you know, orbiting the moon, looking back at Earth, and saw the beautiful sphere or partial sphere of the Earth in view, and took a picture to share with everybody, and it gave people a sense of how special and, and beautiful and fragile the planet is. We created something like that, and we invited people to imagine they were sitting on a bench on the moon, looking back at the Earth. So we made a little area where it was curtained off right next to the space shuttle that's been retired on top of this aircraft carrier, which is the museum. And people came into this room for just a few minutes and they sat on a bench and they looked up and in the sky, they saw the Earth with actual satellite data projected onto it. So they could see just a dark Earth as if it's floating in the heavens and see some real imagery of countries they can recognize curling by. So we asked people to ask themselves, if you could see the Earth from space, how would it help you think differently about living on Earth and about climate change? That's fascinating. So what were some of the responses that you got from people that participated? It was great. And thank you for asking. We had about 400 people experience our display that day. And it was the first time for my team, the Space Naval Research Group at MIT, to put on a public art activity led by Lisbeth de la Torre, who is an amazing artist and designer. And on that day, it was interesting because I think some people assumed that the experience would be very exciting, have perhaps a movie with music. 
And some even asked us, hey, is this working? And we said, yes, it's actually just a moment for quiet reflection. So we're not actually trying to excite you or surprise you with a, a wild video. We're asking you to reflect on just the earth itself. So what I love was some people went in with their kids and they would just sit quietly. And I, I was timing each person because we had a line of people waiting. And sometimes I would peek my head in to say, okay, your time is up. But I could tell that the, the parents and child, children were just speaking quietly and looking at places on earth and waiting for someone they recognized to come up. I didn't have the heart to interrupt them. <laughs> and some of them really, I think, could have stayed longer and continued to reflect. So of course it was a moment of quiet, not a moment of entertainment. But I think many people really took that to heart and enjoyed it. Oh, that's really fascinating, Danielle. So somebody who's a space scientist who understands and tries to explore the, the universe, how do you kind of, uh, how does that better inform your notion of what it means to be human? I teach a class which takes the mission statement of my team and flips it on its head. Our mission statement says, we seek to advance justice in Earth's complex systems using designs enabled by space. But in order to say we're doing that, we have to reflect on what justice means and why we're in a world today where it's so difficult to achieve justice. We have a couple definitions of justice in our team. One says the world will be just and everyone has access to tools such as space technology and can use it to address their own development needs. Secondly, we would highlight that we need to meet the sustainable development goals as defined by the United Nations. This is a set of about 17 high-level goals and 169 more detailed uh, sort of quantifiable goals that show what are the steps that need to happen for countries around the world to ensure everyone has access to food, water, education. We also think a lot about, in our research, uh, addressing the broader technology question to say, if we're designing technology as engineers and scientists and designers, how can we ensure that we're not making things worse through our design process in areas like racism and affecting people from different genders and different orientations and different nationalities? So we actually have a project, for example, called Anti-Racism and Technology Design to ask the question, how can we understand first that technology does harm people from different racial groups differently? That's already been documented, but we can add to that documentation. And second, what can we do during the design process as an aerospace engineer to actually ask how can our aerospace systems be anti-racist? Now, before doing any of that, I teach my students history. They can't make anti-racist designs if they don't know why the world is the way it is today. So in my class, I've reversed my mission statement. The class is actually called Can Space-Enabled Designs Advance Justice and Development? It's really part of a two-part series. And in this section for one semester, I invite students coming from engineering, from design, from social science, and we read history books together and books from political economy and anthropology. In particular, the longest book we read is Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram Kendi. And this book changed my life in 2016 because I didn't realize until then how racist I was. And as a reminder to the listeners, I'm a black woman. But of course, all of us growing up in the US, we grew up with many racist ideas. These are ideas that infer or directly state that certain racial groups are inferior than others based on their behavior, based on their outcomes, for whatever reason. Ibram Kendi's book, which people can easily find, he's, he's well-cited these days, uh, Ibram Kendi's book highlights that there's been a number of racist ideas used very consistently throughout the history of the United States, even before it was formerly a country. And they were often used to justify racist policies that caused harm for some and gained economic benefit for others. So currently in the United States, the community of people who are white males have many benefits in society, and they're based on historical patterns where traditionally they owned land, they voted, 
they held positions of leadership in government. And women and people who are from other racial backgrounds were not doing any of those things. So gradually, you've seen through several kinds of civil rights movements, women and people of color uh, basically struggling and making great effort to claim all those basic rights to also be full citizens and members of society. But yet, the racist ideas that have been the foundation of these systems do remain. We also read Ibram Kendi's more recent book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, because he doesn't just leave us depressed at the history of the consistent racist ideas. He highlights that it's possible to learn and recognize your own internal racist ideas and gradually learn to replace them. So he both teaches us how to reflect differently and actually reject ideas that are either racist or sexist or homophobic, as well as how to struggle and demand policies that treat people the same across groups. Furthermore, if you're an engineer or a scientist who's designing something, we have to recognize that we start on society that's not equal. It's very obvious today, but it's been obvious to me for years, that when you start off with a design activity or an educational program, people who might benefit from these programs are already facing different barriers to success because there's been years of discrimination and different treatment to different groups. This has also been studied by many historians. So that means that you can't just start and say, well, we're getting everyone equal opportunity. It'll be great. Instead, we have to actually look at what's happened traditionally, what have been the barriers that have already been put in place for certain groups, and then do our design for space technologies and for other complex systems that provide services to people in a way that recognizes those problems and tries to overcome them. It means that when I build a system to use satellite data to monitor invasive plants in West Africa, and I'm working on a project like this in the country of Benin, we're working closely with a company that is focused on the needs of community members who live in an organization in an area uh, that has not traditionally had access to the latest technologies. We have to think very carefully, first, how to not bring in our negative biases and appreciate local knowledge, but also how to think about the technology as being useful from the point of view of those users rather than from us as an American point of view. So we try to first study history, be able to explain what has happened in our society in the U.S., but also globally, that has created such unequal outcomes for different groups. And then how do we first reject that? And then how do we take our design process forward and say, we're going to actively design to redress and to improve these different outcomes for different groups? Ah, oh, that's fascinating, Danielle. What I'd like to do since you brought it up is explore this idea of identity. In particular, how do you hold your sense of responsibility given your role right now, especially in this current moment as it pertains to race relations in America? Right now, I'm heavily focused on doing the good work I've been doing for years. I've been fortunate to be hired at MIT as a faculty member, and I am in two departments. One is called the Media Lab. It is an organization that is an interdisciplinary research center and brings together faculty from art, design, engineering, and science. I also hold a position in aeronautics and astronautics. It's a great opportunity, and I'm so thankful to have that opportunity to work with students and to work with colleagues. Of course, there's an overall process. I'm still in my early, early years as a faculty member, and people may know that there's a process within academia to get a position called tenure. When you are tenured, you've been brought into academia, and it's a job guarantee basically for life, and I'm working toward my tenure. If I do get tenured, I'll be the first Black woman in both the departments that I am affiliated with to have that role. So I'm very excited. It's a great privilege. So from my side, I feel I'm supporting all the activists all over the world who are supporting justice for Black people by working my hardest to get tenure, <laughs> meaning by doing the work that I do every day, which includes teaching people about anti-racist ideas, it includes designing technology to have access to people around the world, and by doing my best to you know, serve with excellence. All of that is part of my effort for the same concerns people are expressing in the protest as well. 
Yeah, that reminds me of the Gandhi quote when um when somebody asked him what his message for the world was, he simply said, "My life is my message." because he believed his actions were the most uh, important thing to demonstrate what he believed. Would you say that's somewhat accurate with you? So I certainly would say that I'm committed to doing research and projects with partners around the world that's dedicated to promoting sustainability on Earth and in space. And sustainability means that we'll have a society in which there aren't major differences in groups. There shouldn't be such great wealth inequality across different groups around the world. There shouldn't be groups that consistently experience such difficult outcomes in areas like economics and wealth and education. We're working to eventually dismantle those, especially for Black people in the US right, US right now, but of course, also for all oppressed peoples. The people who are concerned about violence toward Black people are also concerned about immigrants who are concerned about their citizenship status or their ability to live safe in the US. We're also concerned about the impacts on communities of Indigenous background who have had many years also of oppression. There's very much a common set of concerns, uh, but we're thankful, of course, to be able to highlight uh, the impacts on Black people right now. Yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking with you here, Danielle. I just want to ask you one more question here before we wrap up, and um, it's simply this. What's your message for the world? My message for the world is that as we continue to expand the way we operate as a human race in space, we're going to be able to answer some key questions. Can we make a society, first in space and also on Earth, that actually supports health and well-being for people no matter what group they're from? And can we learn activities in space and bring them back to Earth be sustainable no matter where we live. Ah, that's wonderful, Danielle. I just want to say I appreciate you and the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi and theme music by Heis Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support, and on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.